Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Get your advanced PhD in WOW from Floor and Decor. If you're a pro, you're already an expert in tile, wood, and stone. And with Floor and Decor's job site delivery, their free design services, and pro rewards that actually reward you, your business is set to grow from one client to the next. Floor and Decor isn't just a couple of aisles. It's an entire store designed to help your business boom. It's Floor and Decor. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. A few weeks ago, I had futurist Kevin Kelly on the podcast to discuss the technological trends that are shaping our future, from driverless cars to artificial intelligence that will make new scientific discoveries. Kevin paints a pretty rosy picture of what's to come. My guest today sees a different side of the coin and argues that the future envisioned by many in Silicon Valley is, well, kind of creepy. His name is Nicholas Carr, and he's the author of several books that critique the wide-eyed utopianism of technologists. In his book, The Shallows, he reported on the research that shows how Google is making us dumber. In The Glass Cage, he explored the science and why outsourcing our work and chores to computers and robots might actually make us miserable and unsatisfied in life. And in his latest book, Utopia is Creepy, Carr pulls together all the essays he's written over the years on how the rapid changes in technology we've seen in the past few decades might be robbing us of the very things that make us human. Today on the show, Nicholas and I discuss why he thinks our utopian future is creepy, how the internet is making us dumber, and why doing mundane tasks that we otherwise would outsource to robots or computers is actually a source of satisfaction and human flourishing. We finish our discussion by outlining a middle path approach to technology, one that doesn't reject it fully, but simultaneously seeks to mitigate its potential downsides. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash creepy, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Nicholas Carr, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Uh, so I've long been a fan of your work, The Shallows, The Glass Cage. Uh, your new book is Utopia is Creepy, which is um, a collection of blog posts slash essays you've written over the years about technology's influence on our cognition, how we think, our culture, our autonomy, the gamut. So let's start with this broad question. One of the criticisms you make at Silicon Valley in particular is that they're not just selling us gadgets and software. And that's what we think they're selling us. But you argue they're also selling an ideology. Uh, what is that ideology, you know, and, and why do you think it's bad for human flourishing? It's, it's an ideology that has deep roots in American culture and American history. There's, there's a strain of technological utopianism that, that runs uh, through U.S., United States thinking going back a couple of hundred years um, in it, in it assumes that it, it assumes a couple of things. One is that technological progress will bring us to, will solve all, all our problems and bring us to some kind of paradise on earth. And second, and more insidious, I think it, it assumes that we should define progress 
as technological progress rather than, and I think this is a better way to do it, rather than looking at technology as a tool that gets us to some broader, that, that, that moves us forward to some broader definition of prog- progress, cultural, social, economic, or whatever. With, with Silicon Valley, I think it gives this long tradition of techno-utopianism a new, a new twist um, and, and kind of a new ideology that is all about um, venerating the virtual over the real. Um, so I think, I think on the one hand, Silicon Valley is very materialistic. It, it wants to measure everything. And what can't be measured is kind of not even worth <laughs> keeping track of or, or giving any value to. But at the same time, it hates the materiality of the world and even the materiality of the human body. It wants, it believes that by virtualizing everything, by running the world with software and perhaps even creating a new virtual world out of software, will solve the kind of messiness, um, the emotion, emotionalism and so forth that characterizes human beings, um, and also the, the messiness that characterizes the physical world. So it, I think Silicon Valley has this, this kind of misanthropic ideal that physicality is the problem that we need to solve. And if we can turn everything into algorithms and, and, and even turn ourselves into artificial intelligence, we'll be better off. Right. They're all, they're all about making things frictionless. Right. And it turns out, I, I would argue that friction <laughs> is what gives, gives interest and in, in fulfillment and satisfaction to our lives. It's coming up against the world and, and figuring it out, figuring out how to act with agency and autonomy, gaining talents and skills, all these things that, that emerge from coming up against hard challenges and coming up against friction. This is, I think this is what gives interest to our lives. And, and I think the tech industry sees, sees all of this as something to get rid of. The, the less friction there is, the more, uh, you know, everything will run efficiently and we won't come up against challenges or hard work or, or things that might make us fail. But it seems to me that that's uh, a recipe for, for removing satisfaction and fulfillment from our lives. Right. And that's why you think utopia is creepy, or at least how Silicon Valley envisions it? Well, I, I think beyond Silicon Valley, I would argue that all kind of visions of utopia tend to be creepy. There's this, uh, there's this famous concept of the uncanny valley in, robo- in robots. So in, in what that says is that the, the more humanoid a robot becomes, the creepier it becomes, because we're very, very good at, at, we're social beings, are we humans. And so we're very good at, at picking up signals from other living things. And it, and it very, it's, it becomes immediately clear when there's a robotic attempt to mimic a human being that this is not a human being and we get creeped out. And that, that's one of the big problems that roboticists have as they try to create humanoid robots is that these always seem creepy to us. And that's the uncanny valley that it's very hard uh, for roboticists to cross. And I think something, something very similar happens in portrayals of utopias. Because almost by definition, there's no tension in, in a utopia, no friction. Everybody behaves very well. Uh, every, everybody is on, the, you know, on their best behavior all the time. And when you see that, all of a sudden you realize that, you know, 
people begin in utopias. People act very robotically. They're very efficient. Uh, they have no messy emotions. They don't get angry. Um, and I think that, that, that characterizes utopias in general, which is one of the reasons that in science fiction, we're much more drawn to dystopian <laughs> portrayals of the future as this horrible mess. Uh, whereas attempts in fiction or in movies or whatever to create a vision of utopia always turns out to be more repellent than the dystopia is because we don't see any human qualities there. And I think, and, and I think the ideal that Silicon Valley has, the utopian ideal where everything is very efficient and, and runs on software is very much this kind of creepy ideal that in order to achieve it, you have to drain human beings of what makes them human. And but why do you think they still have that drive? I mean, why don't they see the creepiness of it? Like I look at them like, man, that's weird. <laughs> like, why don't they see it? Well, I, you know, I think some of it is, comes from their personalities that I don't think in, you know, this might, this is a generalization, but I think it, it's some, uh, to some extent true. These, a lot of the leaders in Silicon Valley have spent most of their lives interacting with the world through computer screens and that suits their personality. They're not necessarily uh, open to ambigu ambiguity, ambiguity or to uh, messy emotions or to the kind of social conflicts that, that come whenever you engage um, with people face to face and, and with the world. So I think they're, I think they come from, you know, I think their ideals reflect a personality that is very comfortable with computers and very comfortable with software and programming. But when things aren't programmed and things happen unexpectedly and perhaps inefficiently and ambiguously, they're, they draw away from those things. So, so I think in, in some sense, what the, the world that Silicon Valley wants to create and it's, uh, to me, it's a very robotic world, is the world that these people actually want to live in. That's interesting, which is, it's just strange because like, you know, uh, the internet, the, the, one of the promises of the internet would like, it would be this sort of, uh, it would be sort of utopia, you know, sort of a utopia where you have different types of viewpoints, different types of ideals all together that anyone can access. But the way it's worked out is we have these people at the top who are actually, structuring the internet in a way that suits their personality and the way they like things. And we have to go along with it. Right. And, you know, one of the things I try to, I've, when I put together Utopia's Creepy, this collection, one of the things I did is read through my blog going back a dozen years. And, and I realized that a lot of, a lot of the dreams about the internet and, and ones that a lot of us held when, when we first started going online have, not only haven't panned out, but in many cases, the opposite has happened. So we, we thought that the, you know, by going online, we'd bypass centralized, uh, centralized hubs of power, whether it's political power, media power, or economic power. And we'd have this great democratization where everyone would have their, their own voice and, and we'd listen to lots of different viewpoints. And what's happened is, is really we've seen a, an incredible centralization of power, power over information. So you get a handful of, of companies like Google and Facebook uh, and, and Amazon and so forth that control now huge amounts of the time people spend online and huge amounts of the information that they get. And, and, and so more and more of our experience is being filtered by these companies. 
and need, needless to say, they're they're motivated not only by their ideology, but by their desire to make money. These are profit-making companies, of course. Um, and so I, I think a lot of the a lot of the feelings about democratization of information, about people broadening their viewpoints, uh, has not panned out. And, and I think what we're, what we're learning is that when we're bombarded by information the way, way we are these days, we actually become less open-minded and more polarized and more extreme in our views. And I think we saw that, you know, in the recent election, and I think we see it in political discourse, that, that, that our hopes for, for the, our hopes about how society and ourselves would adapt to having this constant bombardment of information just haven't panned out. And, and now we have to struggle with consequences that we didn't foresee. Right. And I think one of the insidious things about the internet, or at least the way it's structured, is that it gives us the illusion that um, we have freedom, right? Like we can spout our opinion on Facebook or Twitter, and we think we're participating in democracy and that we're, you know, expanding our viewpoints. But you argue, I mean, I think you just made the point that it actually is, is an illusion. Like it actually it reduces our autonomy and it reduces our agency. I, th- I think that's right. And some of that is is simply because we become more reflexive when we have <laughs> when we have to process so much information so many notifications and alerts and and messages so quickly that we have to we have to deal with it in a superficial fashion and so we may think we're we're you know being participative if we click a like button or retweet something but really this is a very superficial uh way of being uh, being involved and participating and it's on the terms uh, determined by the technology companies, by the social media platforms. Um, you know, it's in their interest to get us kind of superficially taking in as much information as possible because that's how they collect behavioral information. That's how they get opportunities to show us ads. Um, and, you know, I would argue that in this, that on the one hand, you know, there's the great benefit of the internet, which is that it does give us access to, to information and to people that used to be hard to access or, or impossible to access. On the other hand, what it's stolen from us is kind of the contemplative mind, the calm mind that takes this information, takes our experiences and our conversations and quietly makes sense of them. And I think that, I think that ultimately you know, you need that space in which to think by yourself and without interruption, without distraction, in order to develop a rich point of view and hence, you know, express yourself and express yourself and communicate yourself in a in a rich way rather than this reflexive way that we've adapted to online, which does give us this illusion that we're constantly participating, constantly part of the conversation, but really kind of ends up narrowing our perspective, makes us more polarized, makes us more, quicker to reject, you know, information that doesn't fit with our existing worldview. Um, so I, I do think there's this kind of illusion of thinking and illusion of participation that often isn't the reality of what's going on. Right. And along that lines of participation, um, you know, one of the benefits that technologists tout about the internet is that it makes, it democratizes the the ability to create content, right? We're no longer just consumers, we're also creators. But what people forget is that like, 
you're creating that for the company. You're kind of working for the company for free, right? When you create Amazon reviews or create YouTube videos or create content on Facebook or Twitter. That, that's right. And it, it, this is something I, I coined the term digital sharecropping to uh, kind of an ugly term, but I think it, it describes this, that, that what, you know, whether it's Google search engine or whether it's Amazon reviews or whether it's the entirety of Facebook or Twitter, Essentially, the content that these companies use to make money off of is the content we create. So, so similar to a sharecropping system where, you know, a plantation owner would give a, a poor farmer a little plot of land and some tools and then would take most of the economic value of any crops that were grown, uh, were given by these social media platforms, these little, uh, little plots of land to express ourselves and to develop our profiles and and to share and so forth. But all of that creativity and that goes into that is monetized by the company. So, so we become these people who, who create the content without getting any compensation for it, any monetary compensation for it that allows companies like Facebook and Google to become enormously rich. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not to dismiss some of the opportunities that the, the internet, the web does really give us to express ourselves. I, I mean, I've, as I say, I've written a blog for a long time and I enjoy that. And I, I feel like I've, you know, been able to clarify my own thoughts as well as speak to an audience that I might not have. But I do think we need to recognize the kind of economic dynamic that underlies a lot of what we do online and how, in a very real sense, even though we, we don't notice it, we are being exploited and manipulated um, and kind of outside of our own consciousness sometimes we're kind of employed without pay to create these huge, very, very powerful and very rich companies and, and as well as very rich owners of them. Right. I, I, I thought another criticism you made was funny is that the idea that, oh, if we democratize that, we'll suddenly have all this great stuff, this great content, but like most of the content that's self, you know, amateur created is crap. Like, I mean, it's, I know it's mean to say, but yeah. like in, Instagram comedians <laughs> are the worst. I don't understand why people think that's funny, but apparently it's a thing. Yeah, and it it kind of <laughs> so, sometimes it shows that the audience, you know, when they get free stuff, will and they they'll, they'll look for the most superficial kind of buzz, and and that'll be enough because they don't that they're nobody's encouraged to spend time kind of developing taste or, or thinking too carefully about things. Um, and you know, this is a, this kind of dream that everybody you know is going to be a great writer or, or a great filmmaker um, or a great musician, you know, unfortunately, it's just not true. And and I think a lot of people understand that. Uh, I certainly understand that, you know, I'm not going to be a great songwriter and so forth. And so, so again, this is another illusion that the web sometimes gives us that, that it's always better. What the web tells us is, is this kind of myth of participation that, you know, if you're just passively reading something or watching a movie or a TV show or listening to a podcast, there's something wrong with that. I would argue that that's exactly the opposite, that a, a lot of the greatest satisfactions come from being uh, a member of an audience of good stuff in that we, we shouldn't feel that if we're not, we, should, we shouldn't mistake 
kind of a rich experience of other people's creative work as a passive experience. It's actually very active. Um, as anybody who's read a great novel or watched a great play or anything knows. And so, so you know, the web and, and a lot of the companies on the web kind of encourage us to, uh, to think that we have to be active and participative and creative all the time. Well, that's very important, but let's not lose sight of, uh, of the great pleasures of being an audience of, of really good stuff. So uh, in the shallows, um, you, you take a look at how the web has changed our brains. And you, you talked about, you began the book talking about how you've noticed your brain change over the years. Like you can't focus as much. Um, it's hard to sit through and read a book for a long period of time. Um, and one of the arguments you make in that book is that every information technology we're talking the alphabet, uh, read the book itself, and the internet carries with it an intellectual ethic. Um, what's the ethic of the inter- of the internet? Yeah, and what I mean by that is that that all of these media technologies incorporate a, encourage us to think in a particular way, um, and and also not to think in other ways that they don't support, and th- that this is the ethic. I think what the what the digital technologies in general and the internet specifically, it, it values information gathering as an end in itself. Um, and so what it says is the, the more information that we have access to, the faster that we are able to process it, the more, you know, it, the more intensively it bombards us, the better. That more information is always better. And what, what's lost in that, I think, is what, everyone used to understand, which is that information gathering, very, very important, but it's only the first stage in developing knowledge. Um, and, and certainly the first, uh, in early stage in developing wisdom, if we ever get to that. But knowledge isn't about just gathering information. It's about making sense of information, uh, going out, uh, having experiences, learning stuff, finding, reading the news, uh, taking in information, but then backing away from the flow of information in order to weave what you've learned together into personal knowledge. And this is, this is what's lost, I think, in the ethic, the intellectual ethic of the internet. This sense that there are times when you have to back away from the act of information gathering if you're going to think deeply and if you're going to develop a rich point of view, if you're going to develop a rich store of knowledge, uh, you can't do it when you're actively distracted and interrupted by incoming information. So I think, I think the, the internet is very, very good as a tool for information gathering. But what it encourages us to do is to think that we should always be in the process of gathering information. And I think that's the danger that, that the web presents. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. 
push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And how do you counter that? Not very well sometimes. <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, and this is also something I talk about in the shallows. I think as human beings, we are, there, we have this primitive instinct to want to know everything that's going on around us. And I, I think this goes back to, you know, caveman and cavewoman days when you wanted, <laughs> you wanted to scan the environment all the time because that's how you survived. Um, and so we bring this deep 
information gathering compulsion into this new digital world where there's no end to information. And as a result, and I think we see all of us see this in ourselves, we become very compulsive about wanting to know everything that's going on, you know, on Facebook or, or in news feeds or through notifications and so forth. And so we, we kind of constantly pull out our phone or our computer and, and look at it, even if it's completely trivial information. So I think there's this deep instinct that, that the net in, in, in technology companies tap into, uh, that can, that can become kind of counterproductive that, that keeps us gathering information and glued to the screen. And so to me, the, the only way I found to combat this is to resist some technology. So for instance, I, I don't have, I'm not active on Facebook or on most social media. And it's not because I don't see the benefits of social media. It's because I know that these systems are designed to tap into this instinct I have to want to be distracted and interrupted all the time. And in order to avoid that, I just have to say, no, I don't, <laughs> uh, I'm going to lose the benefits of Facebook. I mean, one thing you, you realize when you're not on Facebook is, for instance, nobody wishes you happy birthday anymore because you're not on Facebook. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, it, it does seem to me that in order, if you value kind of the contemplative mind, the introspective mind, the ability to follow your own train of thought without being interrupted sometimes, then you have to shut down some of these services and make the social sacrifices that are inherent in shutting down services that increasingly are central to people's social lives. So it's it's a very, di at, at this point, it's a very difficult challenge to kind of bring more balance into your behavior, into your mind into your intellect. And, but to me, at least my hope is that I can raise awareness that there are sacrifices that are being made here. And we should be a little more diligent, I hope, in figuring out which of these technologies are really good for us, are making us more intelligent and happier and more fulfilled, in which are simply tapping into this compulsive behavior that we often evidence. So, you know, one assumption that technologists have is that. We'll, we'll be able to find technology to fix problems, even problems caused by technology. I mean, do you think someone in Silicon Valley will come up with something to fix the problem of the distractibility of the internet? Or, um, I think I think there are technologists who are trying to do that. I, I mean, I think we've seen an increasing awareness among the public and and among you know people in Silicon Valley or in other. Uh, technology companies outside of Silicon Valley that this is a problem that that we have created a system that you know has huge benefits and huge potential but increasingly it is keeping people distracted and thinking superficially and often you know polarized and unable to uh, you know you know give credence to people's points of view that don't fit their own and so i, I think you see kind of attempts to create uh, apps or other software programs that reduce the intensity the flow of information that that kind of uh vary the flow of information turn off you know some feeds at some at at times when people might <laughs> be might might get more out of thinking without distraction and being alone with their thoughts than than looking into a screen, um, kind of creating a more unitasking 
uh, environment where there aren't lots of windows and lots of tabs and lots of notifications going. The problem is that that these are a hard sell <laughs> because we've adapted ourselves very, very quickly to um, to this kind of constant bombardment of information in this sense that we're missing out if we're not on top of everything that's happening all the time. So I, I do think, you know, and I think we see this historically, that that often technology rushes ahead and creates problems that were unforeseen, and you can solve some of those problems with with new technology. We certainly see it in, in driving, for instance, with the creation of seat belts and all sorts of technologies that kind of make cars safer and, and so forth. But it can be, there's always this kind of tension between the momentum a technology gains as it moves ahead and as we adapt ourselves to it, and and the need to sometimes back up a little bit to redesign things uh, to to better fit with what you know makes us interesting, well-rounded people. So, so I'm, I, I think I think there are ways to to deal with some of these problems technologically through better design of systems, better design of software. The question is: Will we, as the public, accept those? <laughs> uh, those those technological advances, or are we stuck in this pattern of behavior that that has been inspired by the technology and the companies that are dominant in the technology? Right. The other issue is there's, there's really no money in that. Right. That's I mean, like- yeah. That's as long as I mean one of the big issues is that we have set up the web and social media and so forth as an advertising based system. Um, if you if we were paying for these things, you know, there there was a time uh, in the in the era of the personal computer where if you wanted to do something with your with your PC or your Mac or whatever, you'd go out and you'd buy a piece of software and you'd install it and then you'd use it for whatever you wanted to accomplish. And that was actually a pretty good model. And we've abandoned that model for a model of you know give it to me free, but distract me with ads and, and collect information about me. Um, and getting away from that, you know, would mean actually having to pay for stuff. <laughs> and and we've, we've so adapted ourselves to the idea that, you know, everything is free, uh, that, boy, it's getting people to pay for something that, you, that they could get for free is a really, really a hard sell. So, so in the glass cage, you take a look at artificial intelligence, and this is the stuff that creeps me out uh, the most: is AI. Um, I had Kevin Kelly on the podcast last week, talk to him, and he's pretty like he's gung ho about this. He thinks it's great, but you AI gives you pause. Uh, why? Why is that? Well, for for a number of reasons, and, and again, you know, I I don't want to I don't want to come off as just reactively against uh, progress in computing and progress in AI, because I, I think there are ways that we can apply um, artificial intelligence that would, that would be very good and that, that would help us out and would help us avoid some of the, uh, some of the flaws in our own thinking and our own perspectives. Um, but I, first of all, the AI has, the, the definition of AI has gotten really fuzzy. Um, so it's hard to know, you know, these days, technology companies call pretty much everything AI. But where I where I see the the problem with artificial intelligence as it 
begins to substitute for human intelligence in analyzing situations, making judgments about situations, making decisions about it, is that it begins to steal from us our autonomy, our agency, and also steals from us opportunities to build rich talents of our own. Um, and I, I think we can see this in a, in a simple way with um, uh, navigational technologies, um, you know, Google Maps or, or, or GPS systems in your car, that on the one hand, they, they make it very, very easy and kind of mindless to get from one place to another, but as a result, we don't develop our own navigational skills. And also, we don't pay attention to, to our surroundings and so don't develop a sense of place. And it turns out that those types of things, the ability to make sense of, of space and of place and to be attuned to your surroundings, is really pretty important to us. I, I mean, we are physical creatures in a physical world, and we have evolved to be part of that world. And so what we don't, in, in our drive to, to make everything more convenient and easier, often we sacrifice the things we take for granted, which are all about learning to navigate the world and have agency in the world and have autonomy in the world. We kind of take those for granted, and so we're very quick to lose them in order to gain a little bit more efficiency or a little bit more convenience. And it does strike me that you know, beyond the kind of doomsday scenarios or the utopian scenarios of the singularity and, you know, computers overtaking human intelligence at a practical level, th the danger is that as computers become more able to sense the environment, to, to analyze things, to, to make decisions, that will simply become dependent on them and we'll lose our own skills and our own talents <laughs> in those regards. You know, our own ability to make sense of the world and to, and to overcome difficult challenges. We'll simply turn on the machine and let the machine do it. And unfortunately, that, that's a scenario that uh, gives us great convenience and great ease, but also, I think, and this goes back to something we talked about earlier, also steals from us the opportunity to to be fulfilled as human creatures in a physical world. Yeah, like with self-driving cars, like I, I still don't get it because like I enjoy driving. Like I don't know why I'd, I'd want to give that up. Everyone's like, well, it's safer. Right. You can be more productive. It's like, I, I actually enjoy driving. And that's true of, I, I completely agree with you. And you know, the last thing, even though I realized that there are ways, and, and this has been a long story with, with automobiles, there are ways for technology to make driving safer. And I think that's very, very important. The fact is that, you know, most people, and it's like 70 to 80% of people actually enjoy driving. And, and, it, and it's not like they're blind to, you know, the dangers and, and to traffic jams and to road rage and all the horrible things that come with driving. But there's something very pleasant about driving, about being in – it's actually one of the rare times that, that we as individuals are actually in control of a very sophisticated machine. Um, and, and there's pleasure that comes with that. And there's this sense of autonomy and a sense of agency. And, and, and in, in some ways, this is a kind of a, a microcosm of the Silicon Valley view. Silicon Valley dismisses, I, I, I think Silicon Valley is totally unaware or of the pleasure that people get from things like driving. Um, and so that leads them, that leads them to simply see 
driving as a problem that needs to be solved because there are accidents, because there are inefficiencies, because there are traffic jams. Um, all of that is what they focus on. Um, and so they, you know, their desire is to relieve us of what to them is this horrible, <laughs> horrible chore of driving a car. And so they, they don't realize that for a lot of people and that driving is really a great pleasure in, in owning a car and all of, all of that. And, and to me, that, that kind of uh, puts in a nutshell the, the, the tension between the Silicon Valley ideal and how people actually live and how they get some satisfaction out of life. Right. So again, it's uh, this idea that they're giving us freedom, but in the process, they're, we have to give up freedom to get that freedom. Right. They're giving us <laughs> freedom. They're freeing us from that which makes us feel free, I think you could, you could say. And then, but then we find out we actually enjoyed those burdens when it's finally taken away. We feel existentially empty. And we're like, oh, I don't do anything. Right. And, and, and I do think that there is, you know, some evidence. And I think this both comes from psychological studies, but also from our own experience that, that when we're freed of labor and freed of, of effort, we actually become more anxious and more nervous and more unhappy. And, you know, it, it turns out that it's, it's the it's the chores that that software frees us from that are often the things that bring us satisfaction that in our in our life that that the experience of facing a difficult challenge in developing the talents required to overcome that challenge that's very deeply satisfying and yet if you look at the goal of of software programmers these days it's to find any place where human beings come up against hard challenges and have to spend lots of time overcoming them in kind of automating that process. Um, uh, so there, you know, that, that's why in, in many cases we think our lives are going to be better when we hand over something, some chore, some task or some job to a machine, but actually we just become more nervous and anxious and unhappy. Right. What, what's your take on virtual reality? Because I mean, it's crazy. Like I remember back in the '90s, like I'd go to the science museum and they had the VR thing. Um, you could go through the human digestive system. That was yeah. the thing. Um, and it was like, and then I thought, this is the future. This is amazing. And then like it died, didn't go anywhere. Now we're seeing this resurgence. Um, is does virtual reality give you pause? Do you think it's going to catch on this time? I think it's going to. Well, I mean, there's the question. There's the kind of physical question of how long can people be in a you know virtual environment without getting nauseous or dizzy or whatever and so let let's assume that that will be solved that that we'll figure out how to create you know systems of, of virtual reality that actually don't that that are actually pleasant to be in well i i think it i think it will have successful applications i mean i can see it in gaming I can see it in certain marketing aspects, you know, if you want to, uh, if you're looking to buy a house or something or rent an apartment, you'll be able to put on your virtual reality goggles and walk through the space. Uh, you can certainly see applications in pornography, which will probably be one of the first to, to come along. But what I don't think will happen, I I think there's there's this belief, Mark Zuckerberg, I think from Facebook has has stated it, that virtual reality goggles will become kind of the next interface for computing. So we'll, we'll spend lots of time with our goggles on or some kind of virtual, in, in some kind of virtual reality. Um, 
in order to, you know, socialize. And that's, that's what social media will become and what personal computing will become. I don't think that that's going to happen because, and I think you see signs of this from like the failure of Google Glass, that there's something about, I think there's some deep instinct within us and within probably all animals that resists having something else control our senses, something else control, something get in the way of our field of vision. I think we can do it for brief periods. We can do it when we're playing a game or, or when we want to accomplish a, a particular task that, that can be accomplished through virtualization of, of space or whatever. But I don't think we're going to see people walking around uh, with virtual reality goggles or even with simpler uh, device projection devices. I, I think... Uh, I think I, I'm very dubious about kind of smartphones being replaced, for instance, by virtual reality systems. Right. Because it looks goofy and looks creepy. It looks goofy and it looks creepy. And it also, it feels, you feel vulnerable. You feel weird <laughs> when, right. when you're, when you're seeing, you know, something that some, some, you, when you're cut off from the actual real world and embedded in a world that somebody else is manipulating. I, I mean, it it's disorienting and it's also, I, I think we're repulsed by it after a while. Well, Nicholas, people who are listening to this and they agree with you, like, yeah, utopia is creepy. Like, I don't want any, I'll, I'll take some of this uh, utopia that they're offering because there's some benefits to it, but there's parts of it I just know I don't want to go is it possible to opt out? Um, I guess it is possible. You 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 don't do social media. Um, yeah. Any other ways to opt out? I, I mean, I do a little. For instance, I'm on Instagram, but I have a private account with you know a handful of close friends and family members, and it's really good. I mean, it's you know if you restrict if you place certain restrictions on social media, I think it can be very very valuable and very fun. So I'm not you know. I'm not arguing for total opting out if, as if that were even possible. I, I mean, I think one thing we know about the internet and computers and smartphones is that it's actually very, very hard to live these days without, without those kind of tools because society as a whole, our social systems, our work systems, our educational systems have rebuilt themselves around the assumption that everybody's pretty much always connected or at least has the ability to connect very frequently. So I don't think, you know, some people will will opt out totally, just as some people opted out of television totally and so forth. But those, I think those will be people on the margins. For most people, I think it's really, the challenge is really more about re- developing a developing a sensibility of resistance rather than, a sensibility of rejection. And, but, you know, often tech, techies will, will quote Star Trek and say resistance is futile. You know, the Borg of the internet is going to take us all over. So just give into it. I think that's absolutely the wrong approach. I, I think it's valuable to resist these kind of powerful technologies. And, and this is a powerful technology. It's a media technology that wants to become the environment in which we exist. And I think it's important to resist. And by resist, I mean, instead of, instead of being attracted to whatever's new, to the latest novelty, to the latest gadget, to the latest app, always pause and say, you know, how am I going to use this? How do other people use this? Is this going to make 
my life better? <laughs> am I going to be, am I going to be happier? Am I going to feel more fulfilled and more satisfied if I adopt this technology? Or am I just going to be more distracted, more dependent on, uh, technology companies, uh, more, less able to follow my own train of thought, uh, less well-rounded. And I think if we just start asking these questions, um, and everybody's going to have different answers to these, but if we start asking to these questions, I think we can be become more rational and more thoughtful in what technologies we adopt and what technologies we reject. And ultimately, I think that's the only way to kind of balance the, the, the benefits and the good aspects of, of, the net and all, all related technologies with the bad effects. And, and by now, I think we all know that there are bad effects, that this isn't just a story of, you know, uh, everything getting better. It's, it's, a, it's a story about costs and benefits, and we have to become better at balancing those. And that really does mean becoming more resistant and more skeptical about the technology in the promises being made about the technology. Well, Nicholas, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about your book and your work? Um, well, you can go online. <laughs> yeah, I have a, my personal site is nicholascar.com where you can find out information about my books and links to my articles and essays that I've written in my blog, um, which I, I still write, though not as intensively as I used to, is called Rough Type, and you can find that at roughtype.com. Awesome. Nicholas Carr, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. My guest today was Nicholas Carr. He's the author of several books, including The Shallows, The Glass Cage, and Utopia is Creepy. All of them are available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about Nicholas's work at nicholascarr.com. That's Carr with two R, C-A-R-R. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash utopia is creepy, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. The show is recorded on clearcast.io. If you're a podcaster who does remote interviews, it's a product that I've created to help avoid the skips and static noises that come with using interviews on Skype. Check it out at clearcast.io. As always, we appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.